I find that the joy for me happens. It's the little things that like I didn't plan. It's the tickles on the couch with my kids and the walk after dinner. And even as a kid, I took dance classes, but the dancing that I remember was the dancing in the living room. Welcome to Jumpstart Your Joy. This season is all about intentional comfort, and we'll be taking a look at the crossroads of the inspiration, intention, and action that you can take to bring more comfort and joy to your everyday. This is your host, Paula Jenkins. Welcome to episode 322 here on Jumpstart Your Joy. This week, I am so excited to be joined by Jen Oglesby. She is a certified life coach and licensed clinical social worker, and the discussions that she and I had last summer are actually what led to the theme for season seven here on Jumpstart Your Joy. And so it's a real honor to have her back almost a year later to talk more about her own journey over the last year. Jen is also someone who talks a lot about joy and its role in our lives, and she also lost her sister to brain cancer in December of last year. So she has a lot to share about her own journey through grief and rediscovering herself after she's had a really profound loss in her life. And I just want to honor and say thank you so much, Jen, for being willing to share your story here and also to share it with those people that follow you on social media. I know it means a lot to people to understand what grief can look like. So before we get to Jen, a couple of short things that I want to also let you know about. If you have a podcast or are interested in podcasting and content creation, my friend Marion Abrams of Grounded Content and I have just kicked off a new trial show, which is called Podcasting and Content Creator Insights. And it's on YouTube. So I will put a link in the show notes to that. We've had a few interesting conversations about the strategy and some of the things that go on when you're considering creating a podcast or a show that has week over week content being created. So Marianne and I will be doing those shows once a week on Wednesdays at 9 a.m. Pacific or noon Eastern time. And they'll be live on YouTube. So you can join in and even send a question if you have it or chat with us there. We'd be so excited to see you. And if you want to find out more about this show, Jumpstart Your Joy has been around since 2015. And you can find all of the past episodes along with information about the show over at jumpstartyourjoy.com. And so let's just jump right on into this conversation with Jen Oglesby. Welcome to the show, Jen. Thank you, Paula. Not our first time talking, but the first official appearance. So I'm happy right. to I'm happy to be official. So I'll let the audience in on why we're giggling. Over the summer, Jen and I did a series about what the hell is going on. And of course, our question continues, which maybe we'll address today as well. But that was on Instagram Live. And that series of conversations is actually what formed the idea of intentional comfort being the theme for season seven. And so that's why we're giggling. She's on the season opener (laughs) in that episode, but you didn't get to answer the first question that everyone gets to answer, which is what were your earliest or tell us what you love most as a child or in school? What were your earliest sparks of joy? Yes, my time has come. So yeah, so the first thing that comes to mind when I think of sparks of joy when I was a kid is dancing. And I mean, I did dance classes, but what I'm talking about is like the dance shows I put on in my living room where I was dancing to Michael Jackson's Thriller while watching myself in the reflection of the TV and just that sort of unabashed like performer who's five years old and thinks she's the best at everything. Um, 
And there are some quite legendary home videos from that time. And so that was definitely, and performing has always been a point of joy for me. I went on to do theater and there's something about that self-expression. I think that's always felt very joyful for me. I also used to make, it's funny, I used to make a lot of cards and things for my family and like do things like scavenger hunts for their birthdays. Like when I was 11, I was like, dad, I did a scavenger hunt for your 50th birthday at not sure what he thought about it. I hope he thought it was delightful. But my stepmom used to joke that I should work for Hallmark. I just loved and I still do. Birthdays are huge in my family. I love celebrating people and I don't know, just making things special. That always felt really fun for me. And then uh, the other thing that comes to mind for me is just that sort of unstructured sibling play. It's just playing with my sister outside and We created many imaginary worlds, most of which I was the boss. So like I was always the teacher, (laughs) my poor sister, like she was always the student. She was always the patient. She was always the baby and I was the mom. Some things never change, but yeah, we had a lot of fun and just that ability to, I don't know, create a whole nother world and be so present in it Mm -hmm. was just such a joyful thing that I think about still. I love that. And are you the older sister? I'm the older sister. Yeah. Yes. Uh, also too. aligned with the bossy sister. Those things typically <laughs> go together. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. So true. Well, and I love, I so very love the dancing and performing piece. My sister and I and our, let's see, next door neighbor, best friends. We would put on full on performances for our parents and my grandparents at one point. So you are a life coach now. And I know one of the things that we definitely have in common is that you like to help people find joy, which I can see coming out through the things that also brought you joy as a kid. What brought up your interest in life coaching? So I first got introduced to coaching or something like coaching six or seven years ago. So there's a woman named Molly Mayhar who runs Strategy, And I did her holiday council program and it started becoming a yearly tradition And it was the first time I had ever thought about questions. Who do I want to be? Like, what's most important to me? And how do I want to make that visible in my life? Those were not questions like that sort of inside out. Mm -hmm. Those were not questions I had ever asked myself. I was like going around checking all the boxes. And it was the first time I like turned the question on myself and was like, wait, what do you want? What are you craving? And how are you going to make it happen? And so I ended up going to... Molly's summer camp, which she has in Michigan, which is an adult camp for women. And I met someone who became my friend and now my coach named Leah. Um, So she coached me for a while. And when she said, I'm a life coach, something just flipped in my stomach. And I was like, what is that? I just thought Martha Beck was a life coach. Oprah has a life coach. The rest of us, that's not a thing that like normal people do. So I ended up talking to her and I mean, it was fast. Like within a few months I had signed up for training I went to Martha Beck's website and just the way that she was speaking my language, it was like, this is the thing. This is the thing. I'm also a a licensed therapist and therapy wasn't quite it for me, but I couldn't find the thing. And then I was like, this is the thing. This is where I just feel all electric and energized. So yeah, so I I did training. I quit my job in the middle of the pandemic. (laughs) Just like went for it and yeah, have not looked back since. That is amazing. And also being a certified life coach, there's a big question usually that comes up, and maybe it's just life coaches that ask this, but what would you say is the difference between being a therapist and a life coach? 
for me, the difference between coaching and therapy, I feel like therapy is a lot of processing the past, which is helpful, like identifying patterns, but it's kind of like a, it's a look back in a lot of ways and sort of a recognition of how these things show up for you in the present. For me, coaching does something different because we still notice those patterns and we look at them and we pay attention to them, but we don't stay there. It's, I see that. How do I want to like respond differently, move forward differently? It's more like future oriented. Like we don't spend a lot of time in the past. We don't do anything like trauma and, you know, there are certain things that are not appropriate for coaching that you absolutely should process with a therapist, you know, a a good coach and a a certified trained coach knows when to make that referral. But it's really uh, what coaching did for me that therapy did not was give me just a different toolbox for Mm -hmm. connecting with my inner wisdom in a way that therapy did not. And in a way that even the ways that I have either been trained as a clinician or that I've experienced therapy, it's just a different toolbox and it has different goals. It's more about that actualization piece and that piece of taking what you know about yourself and bringing it forth into the world rather than just like recognizing Mm it. I mean, that's definitely how I would describe it. And I I think you're right. There's a different kind of tool set that comes out of coaching. And I found it to be extremely helpful going through the certification program. Obviously, we got coached a lot. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. I felt that was really helpful. I think it's good for everyone to experience it once and and see if it's something they enjoy. Some people might be more therapy oriented. I have so many clients who do both. And so many clients who have come to coaching after many years of therapy. And it's just unlocked things for them that they're like, I I can't tell you how many times I've heard, gosh, I've done therapy for years and we've never figured this out quite in this way. And it's just because we're coming at it with a different lens and a different toolbox. And I think they're both valuable, but they do different things. And I think they can be awesome together. Yeah. So one of the things, of course, you already know is part of the season is talking about intentional comfort. And I know in a recent post on your blog and you're also part of Unleash Your Soul Song, a podcast. Mm -hmm. You talked about living with uncertainty. What does living with uncertainty look like for you in the last couple of years? It has a lot of layers for me. So I've been living the uncertainty that we've all been living with the pandemic. And that uncertainty is what pushed me to do things like quit my job and start a business because I was just like, well, this all looks like a big mess. Now seems like a good time, as good time as any to do these things. That level of uncertainty pushed me closer to the things that were calling to me or that felt most important to me. My family definitely became one of those families that just got so squeezed by the pandemic and two full-time jobs and having kids at home that something had to give. And I know a lot of people were in that position, but my job was like stressing me out so much. It was actually making me sick. And so it became pretty clear like what needed to go. But the other layer of uncertainty that I have been living with for the last couple years relates to my sister. So she, she's my only sibling and she was diagnosed with brain cancer in 2016 and ended up cancer-free until the summer of 2020. Uh, We found out that her cancer had come back. And she had a very rare form of cancer with a very unclear prognosis. And so at that time, it was like, you could have a year or two, or you could have decades. That was really all we knew. Um, And so we were very much living in this time of one MRI to the next and seeing what we see. And so that was definitely an 
a whole nother layer of uncertainty on top of uncertainty, on top of not being able to see her as much as I wanted to because we of COVID and travel. And the last thing I wanted to do was, you know, bring her an illness. And then things progressed pretty quickly in the summer of 2021 and into the fall. And she um, passed away in December. And so for me, you know, everyone's relationship with their siblings is different. I say I have like four loves of my life, my husband, my two kids and my sister. My sister is just my insides. And for me, that was an unthinkable loss. And anyone who's lost someone can tell you that knowing that it's coming doesn't doesn't make it any less unthinkable. There was a lot of uncertainty about how to support her from three states away. There was a lot of uncertainty about where things were headed. There was a lot of uncertainty of poor communication with her doctors, missed information, mixed information, crossed wires. Nobody could tell us what the hell was going on. And I knew that she was dying and I could not get a doctor to just say that to me. And so there was a lot of questioning myself, like, this is what I see to be certain, but the quote unquote experts won't just say that to me. So there was sitting with that too. And then of course, like losing her. I mean, this is someone that I thought was going to be in my life for the next 50 years. I thought we were going to be together till the end and we would retire and we'd like live next door to each other. And then our husbands would die and then we'd move in together. And then we'd like be a bedroom away from each other. And then we would magically die like on the same day that this was how it needed to go in my head in order for any of this to be okay. And that's all not to be. And so for me, it's really been a process of just intense surrender, really just knowing that there are things that that there is no certainty. And it, it just opens up the whole box of like, all of life is uncertain. And you know, I'm in the, yeah. this phase now where it's like, all these questions about mortality. And you know, I just have a pile of books on my nightstand about death, dying and grief. I'm a really good time right now. And but yeah, I, I had to just sit with this place of not just loss, but like, I felt the floor come out from under me and all the things that brought me comfort and joy did not anymore. It was like it all went dormant and all went dark. And as someone who has hitched her wagon on joy, not only personally, but professionally, that was very disconcerting for sure. And I couldn't really do anything except just let it be. Yeah, that's really hard. Thank thank you for sharing all of that. And I am so sorry for your loss. I know that Thank you. has to be so hard. And there's so much, so many things in there. And, and I feel like the thing that probably many people can relate to, not to boil it down to that, because I, I want to honor there's so much more to the, to your journey. That feeling of the floor has fallen out from under us. I'm imagining many people felt that at some point during the pandemic, because like you were saying about the doctors that you're going and you're saying, I know this to be true. I think all of us wanted at some point for someone to say, here's what's true. Like, here's what's happening. Here's some guideposts that we can all count on. And it just didn't happen. So not to, they're obviously very different types of grief and loss and uncertainty. But I think that resonates really strongly for me because it, it was a feeling of, I just don't even know what to grasp before here. And the pandemic, I'm sure this is true too. And in this situation was definitely true. I feel like in, for most, you know, I've had things happen to me. I've lost people before. I've been through rough times. It's not like this is the first traumatic thing that's ever happened in my life, but this was like the thing that will always be the before and after. And I think that for me, I've always had this perspective that like, 
things are going to get better. This is a rough patch, but it's going to get better. And like, I can trust myself to make my way through. And there was something about this that was like, uh, no, this is forever. Like, this is not going to get better. And like, how do you sit with something? Yes, I'll find ways to cope. And yes, I'll adjust. But this hole is going to be there forever. And for me, like, I had to learn a whole new way to just be with myself when I had something that absolutely could not be fixed. There was nothing to be done. There was no going back. There was no, it's going to get better. And it was never going to be okay. Like it will never be okay that she died when she was 40. That will never be okay. And for me, it it really was like a real whole reorientation of my being to allowing things to be as shitty as they were (laughs) and Mm -hmm. not knowing when quote unquote better might be coming. Right. And I think a lot of us felt that on another level during the pandemic too. Like we, we have no control. We can't fix this and we don't know when it's going to end. And that's not a comfy place to sit. Although there is a resolution (laughs) to the pandemic that is very different than a, a loss of a loved one. Right. And I know that you gave yourself kind of the space in business and in life to just be open to what does this next day look like? And what do I need to do to get through right now? And I know, and hopefully it's okay for me to share that. that yeah. I know that the way that you were processing it was with such care and love, possibly a hope for joy in there for yourself and to honor the relationship that, that you and your sister have. Like, I think that's a unique way of not everyone has the the ability to do that. I don't know if you have any suggestions on if you're met with that kind of loss, how does one surrender? I mean, in the beginning for me, it was like not optional. (laughs) I mean, I'm a highly emotional person. And so in the days after my sister died, people are gathering and they're doing their gathering things. And I'm just like in the other room with a migraine and off for walks by myself. And um, I'm a terrible pretender. That's just who I am. And so I, I can't, I Like, I feel what I feel, and you don't usually have to guess too hard what that feeling is. But it got to a point where I felt like, it sounds so cliche, but like the only way out is through. Like, I was like, I can't do anything except be a different person every day and wake up every morning and figure out who that person is and what does that person need today. And so one of the things that kind of fell away from me a lot of the practices and things that I had in place that usually would bring me comfort and joy, like meditation. I didn't meditate for six or eight weeks. It it just felt like, no, I cannot even, I am already sitting with so much. I am not going to go sit alone with more. Thank you very much. Being around my kids, it, it was like standing outside my own life. I would see them laughing and be like, I don't feel anything when I see that. Like everything was just so dark. And, and I had a lot of really, helpful guides along the way. So like I read Megan Devine's book, like it's okay that you're not okay. And uh, which I highly recommend. It's a fantastic book around grief. And it was just like, this is really as bad as you think it is. Period. Like there's really nothing else you need to do right now, except let it be this bad. And I think if I didn't have these sort of grief teachers who are not necessarily like more mainstream, like there's all these perspectives on grief and like certainly cultural narratives around what grief should look like. And so to have people just come to me and and say like, whether it was through books or whatever, like this is really bad and you actually don't need to do anything except let it be bad. 
gave me permission to just do that. And one of the things that she says was, is, um, I'm paraphrasing, but like, you don't need to do anything like grief will shift and change on its own. Like, I think there's this idea that like, there's something we have to do to like move it along or move it forward. And I just, first of all, found that impossible to do. And second of all, was like, I'm just going to trust that like, if I lean into all of these difficult things, like it's, it has its own shape and its own form and it will do what it needs to do when it's ready to do it. And if you rush that, it will come back and bite you in the ass later. Um, and I know enough about, you know, how we process emotions to know that to be true. So yeah, I just had to, to learn how to sit with it. But for someone to give me permission to just be like, just let it be bad, period, felt really important. We are terrible, terrible as a culture about just letting people be unhappy and sad and where they need to be without coming in and try to do something to make them feel better. And that is often a big disservice to the person who just needs to wrestle through it. I fully agree. And the grief doesn't have a course that is predictable. And all of us, like we want the person to be happier. We want them to feel something that isn't the grief, but it doesn't do anyone a service to try and make it be something other than it is. And I think it's really just our deep discomfort with grief or extreme emotions. I mean, probably as someone who works with joy, you understand that too. Like there's also that other side of it of don't be too happy. And we also don't like someone who's air quotes too sad. So it's a really interesting place when really the thing we need to let people do is just be. I'm very fortunate to have people in my life who knew how to let me do that. You know, people showed up with various kinds of support, some of it more helpful than others. But, you know, one of the benefits to being a clinical social worker as half your friends are too. And so I had a lot of people who just knew how to sit, to sit with difficult things and not try to fix them. And, you know, my spouse basically like took over our like day to day life, you know, parenting and house and everything else, so that I could just go be alone and do the things that I needed to do and be sad. And I I just made a decision and I have, I'm in a privileged position to be able to do that, that I was just going to give my grief all the space it needed. Like that was just a choice that I made because it felt important, not just to honor myself, but to honor my sister too. And I, I just couldn't bear the thought of like, well, now we, now we pick up and along we go. Like that just felt horrifying to me. And so it felt like a way to, to just honor that relationship too. And, and there's all different ways to do it. And I, I don't mean to suggest that there's a right way and a wrong way to grieve. But for me, yeah, I just had to let it breathe. And, and it suffocated me sometimes, you know, like it wasn't like, oh, let me just be with it. Like, no, no, it was very unpleasant. But and I gave myself nice distractions with much binge watching when necessary. And then I would go back to it when I felt ready to. And I think sometimes, you know, sitting with it and then stepping away from it when you need to is about the best that you can do. And then eventually it does shift on its own. There's nothing that I like did. Well, and I think there's a lot of wisdom in noticing that it was becoming either too much or you just needed a breather and doing something else for a little bit. I know Julia Samuel who wrote Grief Works. <laughs> she's amazing. She even talks about when she's working with people who are grieving, you know, she allows herself destruction, not during the same time, obviously, but like she's like after a certain session, sometimes I just need to go watch right. The Marvelous Miss May- Maisel. Like <laughs> so sometimes I just need the break. So I think honoring that. I, I, and I like the wisdom there totally. too, that you know that 
it's okay to hold those two things. Like it's okay to binge and not give all of your time to the grief or not. It, it, you need a little breather in between and yeah, honoring that for yourself. Ugh, thank you for sharing all this. It's yeah. I mean, I'm still, yeah, I'm still very much in it. And the best thing I know to do is just like not tell myself how I should feel and just let myself feel how I feel. I've, I've yeah. ta- I think the other thing that's helped me is I've talked with people and publicly. So like, you know, if you're on my newsletter, gotten my newsletters about grief, if, um, you know, if you follow me on social media, like I talk about it, like it really felt important to me to like, not just, you know, sort of put on my business hat and take my personal life out of it. Like, I'm like, this is light. Like I, like this is life. And this is something we don't talk about or we talk about it a couple weeks when someone dies and then like nobody talks about it anymore. And I'm a little bit like, committed to just keep putting it in people's faces because grief doesn't go away in a few weeks and it's shifting and changing for me all the time. And so I did a lot of writing too at that time and that helped me too. But just telling our stories, you know, if we can tell them to the right people who can receive them in the right way is is also so healing. And so if you can find the right person who can do that hard thing to do Mm -hmm. and just hold it and not not try to fix it. That's like such a, such a gift. Well, and I think if you're not quite ready to share it out loud with someone, the idea of journaling it or just like letting whatever needs to pour out, allow it to pour out, even if it's just for yourself, Deb Cooperman, she does Write Your Way Free, which is a great free workshop she does sometimes. And it is all about processing things through the art of writing. And so I think even if if you're air quotes, not a writer, sometimes it's very helpful just to get it out because then you're also processing as you write. Yeah, writing. I took Megan Devine's writing course and that helped me so much. And I think the other thing too is like telling mm. the truth to yourself, even if you're not ready to tell it to other people. Like there are times when I tell the truth to myself, but I, it feels too, there's something about it that like feels sacred and vulnerable. Like if somebody else mm. takes it the wrong way, they're going to like poke the bubble for me. And I'm not ready for that to happen. I also made a decision that I was going to decide who was going to be the stewards of my grief. Like who can be a good steward of this. And I've been discerning about who gets what pieces of my story because that matters too. And sometimes you might not have that person. And so even if you can just tell the truth to yourself. Yeah. I have not had the grief of of losing someone. I would say that the most profound grief I've had as an adult was strangely the birth of my son, which was (laughs) traumatic labor. And that was PTSD, just so people have context. But what really, oh boy, what you just said about sometimes there's pieces of it that are you just can't share. I think it's really important for people to honor that because I know when I choose to tell the story, as you just heard, like it's snippets of that. And I have had people ask, well, would you share the whole story? No. <laughs> like, <laughs> there are parts of this that are just for me and there's parts that are truth for me, but that I don't, I just... It's okay if part of your story, part of your grief for listeners is something that is just true for you and you d- you don't have to rip the Band-Aid off and share it all with people. I think it was Liz Gilbert that was like, vulnerability is not sharing your Brazilian wax on, <laughs> you know, Brazilian waxing on Instagram. That's not vulnerable. Like, I don't know where I just went with that, but <laughs> I'm with you. You don't have to share the really vulnerable parts to have healed or to have grown or like this isn't a badge this is you getting through things that are hard and sometimes or it always takes a lot of work and it's 
the process of choosing, as you said, the steward, who's the steward of this? Like, who am I, who am I comfortable with enough? And who do I know is going to honor this for me in a way that feels good and is healing? I mean, not that that's always the desired outcome, but really who can help me heal? I think that's yeah. so smart. Yeah, definitely. And yeah. No Brazilians on the Instagram. Oh yeah. No, no worries. Should you choose to find me on Instagram? There'll be none of that there. I'm a very... T- I'm a very transparent person, and even I know better. Um, <laughs> even when I share, you know, like what's mine and what's for other people. And as a coach, it becomes, and how can this help other people? So my sharing in some in my business spaces, for instance, is in service of showing other people something, trying to reflect something back to people where they might see themselves and be able to take that within. So, you know, it's also like understanding why you're sharing what you're sharing. It's been very, it's very interesting to like, think about that and piece that apart and figure out where those places are and what belongs there and what doesn't. So that's like another dance, a dance that I've been doing. And it's important to find the right places wherever those are. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And knowing that what you want to share will change. Like sometimes... In in the immediate present, you may not really feel comfortable sharing a certain part of it, but it might grow that in the future, you can change your mind. Absolutely. It doesn't have to be a, it's not a linear path of like, oh, I'm never going to share this. And I kind of say that even in this, the whole process of having a podcast, like there were things that were out and that I have talked about and there are things that were in that I've decided I don't want to talk about anymore. So, Yeah. Yeah. We can always change our minds. Amen to that. <laughs> Permission granted. Yeah. Well, and I'm wondering too, is there some some ways, because I was really inspired. I had Fred LeBlanc on you. And one of the things he did was revisited some of his songs that he wrote a while ago. And he was like, these things just sit different. Like, mm-hmm. And he was noticing that joy was coming to him in different ways. I mean, in his case, like fans were writing him and saying, hey, I want to let you know, I was thinking of this time when I saw you in concert and it brought me so much joy, like in the middle of the pandemic. And he's like, whoa, this is kind of crazy. Are there some of those things that you've seen either through the pandemic or in in, in your recent journey with grief that, that have hit different? Yeah, it's interesting because my joy feels, it's almost like it's, coming out of winter like it's in dormant like it's there I never was afraid that it left I just was very aware that it was like dormant and I feel like it's kind of waking up but it's a different it's not as loud and it's not as shiny and I I'm definitely somebody who's found joy in like the I would say most of my joys in the quiet or smaller things but I think it's been hard for me to to access joy a little bit I'm still like looking for it sometimes and I trust that it's there. I know it will come to me. You know, I think that's part of it too, is like the parts of us that that get kind of hidden away when we're going through hard things, like they're still there. And I'm just trusting that they are making their way through. But I do find, but one of the things that shifted for me was writing. So I started writing again, but I remember I was an English major in college. I did a lot of writing in college too. And I've always remembered this and never done anything about it. But one of my professors wrote like, whatever you do, in life, keep writing. And I was like, that's so wonderful. And I had real ambitions to like do something with that for a long time. And then I didn't for like 20 years. And I started writing again daily 
when I took this writing course, because I needed a place to put my grief and this felt like a helpful place to put it. And I was like, oh, like it was this forgotten place. I'm like, this is, I did a whole newsletter about it where I was like, I've sort of like rediscovered that like I'm a writer, like that's who I am. And that part got left behind. And one of the things that has reopened for me is putting me in that space. And I kind of got forced into it because I needed somewhere to go. And then as soon as I got there, it felt like home. It felt like, where have, where has this been? You know, like I've needed this. And because I was writing, not just for myself, but in that particular course, you share your writing with other people. And so to have my writing read and to hear people reflect things back to me, it was that sharing piece that I wasn't doing. And so that, that did reignite something in me. And when I think about like where joy is for me now, it's much less clear, but it's there. It's nature. It's, it's dance parties with my kids. It's, it's just these little moments where I can see it and it slips away faster than it used to. Like I can't hang on to it as long, but like it, it appears in these little, like these little twinkles and like, I know they're going to get brighter over time. So I'm not sure if I even answered your question. That's where my brain went with all of that. I I know whenever I'm going through something really hard, maybe the last thing that I want to do is be creative. That's my first response. But interestingly, this kind of goes back to a Fred thing again as well, is he even would say, the first time I interviewed him was like, but sometimes the thing he has to do is, he's a drummer. He's like, is just pick up the drumstick. And I find that to be true is like, sometimes it just takes that first initial step and you remember oh yeah like maybe maybe I can imagine you dancing like oh yeah this is fun even though maybe it's not the same kind of overwhelming joy in the moment that it it has been in the past it's almost like it's a reconnection and you remember it's like you said like you're coming home to yourself in Mm -hmm. some way yeah yeah and I love remembering that those parts of us are always there. Like I remember the first coaching session I did after my sister died. I didn't see clients for a month. And I was so nervous that first session that I was like somehow too in my own stuff and was going to be off my game and once I started coaching again it was like no that part of me is still completely intact. I'm still able to be fully present for people and support them and that felt joyful and it's nice to know that those parts of ourselves that we forget about for a little while, or we're not sure we can still trust, like if we just turn our attention towards them, they'll, they'll do their thing. And then they'll keep doing their thing. (laughs) And so yeah, I love that piece about drumming, because I can relate to that in a lot of ways. Yeah, I, I think that is interesting how we connect back to it. And even if it doesn't feel full steam, I think that's one of the other interesting things about joy is sometimes it is a quiet thing. And especially if we're in the midst of other big emotions, Sometimes the joy is just kind of a subtle invitation to like contentment or I don't know, something a little bit quieter than the kind of boisterous joy that sometimes we think about. Yeah. I think it, yeah, those quiet joys can just give us a place to land. Mm, That's good. (laughs) I am going to soak that up. It gives us a quiet place to land. Is there anything you want to make sure and add before we, we close out about joy or intentional comfort? I think the only thing I would add about intentional comfort that I've learned is, well, it's twofold. One is I had to learn how to experiment because the things that used to work for me were not working for me anymore. It became like a 
literally making a list of the things that I thought might bring me comfort and then trying them and seeing how I felt before, you know, before and after and just trying to keep leaning into those things. And then also I had to get really, really good. And it was really, really hard at communicating to people what was helpful and what was not helpful and being very explicit about what I needed. And, you know, there's a lot of when you're in a situation like this, where you have a very significant loss, and especially if it's like an untimely death or something like that, like where you have to like literally coach the people around you on how to take care of you. And I had to just take responsibility for that and stop expecting people to guess what I need because I didn't even know what I needed half the time. And once I recognized that like for better or for worse, that was kind of my job, that my job, part of taking care of myself was helping tell other people how they could take care of me and I couldn't keep expecting them to just figure it out. That helped me a lot too and was also an extremely hard thing to do. But I think if we want to create comfort for ourselves, sometimes it's not just about what we need for ourselves, but it's about we can't expect people to know what we need and we have to do all the, have those hard conversations about what we really want and what we really need. Even when we're not sure what we need, I'd be like, yeah. this is what I need today. Ask me again tomorrow. <laughs> so, you know, that's a hard thing to do too. Because I know it feels a bit or can feel a bit like, but they're doing something nice. Like I don't, I don't want them to feel bad about whatever the thing is or tell them not today. <laughs> and thank you for voicing that too. Cause I, I think it is one of those things that you go through as you're in the midst of it and you realize, okay, now I also have to advocate kind of for myself when people want to help me. And, and that's probably kind of an unexpected piece. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, for sure. So if somebody would like to work with you, can you tell us what it is that you do and do you have anything that you're offering currently that you would like to engage people with? So you can find me at my website, jenoglesby.com. I'm also on Instagram at jenoglesby. Right now I do one-on-one -on -one coaching. So I work primarily with people who are feeling like overwhelmed, exhausted, like disconnected, and just kind of feel like that zest in life is missing. Like they know they want something more, but... They either don't feel like they have the space for it or the time for it, or they don't know what it is. And so I work a lot with people on making space and time for themselves, which is a universally hard thing for my clients to do. Usually step one, where we start, and then reconnecting with those desires and figuring out how to bring them forth into your life so you can live with more ease and live with more joy. So yeah, I do one-on-one -on -one coaching. And then I also have a, a newsletter where I have a, like a freebie on my website, seven days, seven ways to welcome and joy. And you can sign up on my website. Awesome. I will link up to all of that. And the last question I ask everyone is what are three ways that you can think of to jumpstart joy in your life, in the world, or in other people's lives? I love this question. The first one that I would say is having downtime. So I find that the joy for me happens. It's the little things that like I didn't plan. It's the tickles on the couch with my kids and the walk after dinner and even as a kid, I took dance classes, but the dancing that I remember was the dancing in the living room, you know, in front of the television watching myself. So I think having lots of downtime is one. I think the other one is um, that piece about creativity. So really, you know, this whole experience of like writing and then not writing or dancing and then not dancing. There's a lot of things I gave up because they didn't become professions and they didn't make money. And we are all creators. And I think the more I think of myself as a creator and think of myself as a creative person and express my creativity, um, 
that brings more joy. And I believe that belongs to all of us. And so that would be my number two. And then I think my number three is just like permission to look foolish and to be weird. (laughs) Like, I think there is so much joy that we miss because we don't want to look like a fool. What if we just decided to look like fools and to be weird and let all our joyful, weirdy, weird hang out? You know, we're so afraid of making a mistake or what people would think. And I think if we can just embrace our weird and let other people embrace theirs, I think there's a whole lot of joy to be found there. (laughs) I love it. And I'm so glad you came on. Thank you so much for sharing everything and and being so open about your story and sharing about your sister. It's a real joy to have you on today. Thank you, Paula. It's always a joy to talk to you. And thank you for having me on. Jen, thank you so much for joining me here and for sharing your story. I feel so honored that you are choosing to share about your grief and how such a profound loss has impacted you over the last few months. Thank you for being willing to be vulnerable and share all this with us. If people want to find out more about you, of course, they can go over to your website at jenoglesby.com. I'll have that link in the show notes for this episode. And if you want to find out more about Jumpstart Your Joy, you can find that at jumpstartyourjoy.com, where you can also sign up for the newsletter, which comes out about once a week, or you could purchase my book over there as well, which came out last year, Jumpstart Your Joy, Heart-Centered Ways to Find Joy in the Messy Middle. Next week on the show, I will be doing a solo cast about how joy is more important now than really ever before. You know, I feel like it's more than reasonable to feel overwhelmed during these times. And so I have recently been inspired by a quote that kind of calls us to action, to stepping into the places where we're meant to be in this world. And, you know, embracing joy is one of those things that is actually an act of rebellion. So I hope you'll come back for that uh, and my thoughts. And until then, I hope that your days are filled with so much joy.